Morning. <clears throat> Old Slewfoot, Prince of Darkness, the ancient serpent, Mephistopheles, Abaddon, Apollyon, Old Scratch, names that we have associated uh, with the devil. We have a fascinating text before us today. We're in the season of Epiphany. Remember, Epiphany means the manifestation, the showing forth. And particularly what we see in the Epiphany, beginning with the wise men, symbolic of the nations coming to worship the one true and greater prophet, true and greater son, we see him exercising dominion over the kingdoms of this world. But in our text today, we see him exercising dominion over all things including the demonic world. Uh, we're going to look at this today. It's an area I think many of us uh, feel ill-equipped in or unsure about, but we're going to look at how Jesus uh, engaged this world. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your written word that reveals to us your living word. We pray today that you, we, you would give us the gift of your spirit, that we might understand the things that you have caused to be written for our benefit, that we might not be fearful in this world or confused, but that we might have the mind of Christ, and that with his mind we might discern all things. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So we are in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Mark describes in our text today that as Jesus begins to teach the Word of God, he is immediately confronted by Satan. In our text, he was confronted in the form of a man who was controlled by a demonic spirit, and Jesus dealt with the spirit by casting the demon out of the man. Over and over again, all four Gospels describe these kinds of encounters between Jesus and the forces of darkness encounters that a man named John Wimber once called power encounters. Mark has already recorded one such power encounter earlier in this chapter, right? So again, working through this, Gospel of Mark, very first chapter, second time the enemy appears and he sets forth his pattern. He appears in verse 12 as he attacks Jesus directly. He now appears in verse 21 as he sets his attention on those whom Jesus loves. Mark record other encounters, chapter 5, where Jesus heals a man of demons, or as that text says, we are legion. He, in Mark 7, will write of the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit that Jesus drove away. In Mark 9, Jesus records a power encounter between a young man who was both mute and mad. And all throughout the Gospels, we read accounts of Jesus and his disciples encountering evil spirits. Right? Sometimes... The gospel writers tell us that a certain sickness was demonic in its origin. Sometimes we read that the opponents of Christ were moved by or influenced by Satan. John will tell us plainly in chapter 13 that at the Last Supper, immediately after Jesus had placed the bread into Judas's hands, the text says Satan entered into him. At that same Last Supper, Jesus will tell Peter, that Satan has asked to sift him. We read a similar encounters in the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 5, we read that Satan filled the heart of a man named Ananias, causing him to lie to the apostles. In Acts chapter 19, we read another fascinating story about the sons of Sceva and their 
uninformed, misguided engagement with the powers of darkness. Paul will remind us that the battle we fight, the real battle we fight, is not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities. Peter will write to the church warning that we have an adversary, and that that adversary roams like a lion looking for someone to devour. John, in his revelation, portrays the end of all things, and he gives an image of that last great battle when, as the text says, the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, is cast down. And I would suggest that we cannot read the New Testament without encountering these accounts of power encounters between the kingdom of God and the powers of darkness, between Jesus and Satan or the disciples and Satan. Now, I recognize that in saying that, we have a problem because we live in a rationalistic, materialistic world influenced by the Enlightenment. And for some, all this talk about a personal evil, right, a devil or demons, Satan, for some, it's indicative of a superstitious pre-modern world, right? And so some will conclude that these things can't be real. And the idea of evil behind many things, evil behind mental illness or just illness, sickness, that those things being attributed, attributed to malevolent forces is silliness at best, dangerous at worst. But here's the problem. Well, it's the problem if you want to take this book seriously. It might not be a problem for some of you, but if you want to take this book seriously, here's the problem. It's what Jesus taught. Jesus was very clear about the evil power that our adversary holds. And so if you want to take this book seriously, if you want to take Jesus seriously, to simply dismiss the idea of a personal evil being, right, Satan, is simplistic in its dismissal of the teaching of our Lord. But I will also say that it is fairly common today, even in the church, to pick and choose which parts of this book we want to follow, which parts we believe. Let me also say that the biblical writers did not have a simplistic account of the world or universe in which they lived. They made a distinction if you read the text, they make distinctions between the everyday kind of evil at work in this world as a consequence of sinful human actions and our sinful responses to the sins that are committed against us and the particular work of Satan. And so as you read the Gospels particularly, not every disturbed person was described as possessed, but some were. Not every malady or illness was attributed to the hand of the devil, but some were. And all throughout the history of the human race, there has been a dark side to human experience. There has been profound evil, an evil that is so evil that it exceeds the individual capacity for wrongdoing. For example, the Holocaust. How do you explain an evil of that magnitude? The killing fields. Mao's great leap forward. How do you describe the powers of darkness that were at work in the mass destruction of men and women? Now, side note here. I don't want to excuse human behavior. Right? I'm not suggesting a Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it kind of moment. But I am suggesting the existence of an evil power 
that goes beyond an individual capacity to do evil. An evil power that goes beyond psychological or medical diagnosis. A personal evil spoken of all throughout scripture, spoken of down through church history. In addition to his gospel and the revelation of which we're probably familiar, John, the apostle, also wrote three brief letters to the church that often receive less attention. Actually, very hard to find in the New Testament because they're so short. In one of those letters, 1 John chapter 3, he writes straightforwardly, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, right? Very clear. In a half verse, John summarizes the witness of the gospel message. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Because scripture will portray spiritual power behind all evil, if not the particular evil at the moment, the category. Behind all illness, behind every moral action, behind every division and alienation, Scripture will tell us that there is an evil power pushing those things forward. And Jesus knew this. He knew that his ultimate adversaries were not the Sadducees and not the Pharisees, nor the emperor in Rome. His ultimate adversary, he knew, was the spiritual being who rebelled against God sometime in ages past, the spiritual being who sought to elevate himself above the Almighty and who, having been defeated and cast down, knowing his time is short, sets himself out to be the adversary and to seek the adversary of God and to seek the destruction of all things God has called good. You know, that's what his name means, Satan. means the accuser. So who is this adversary? Where does he come from? Frustratingly, if you're like me, who wants logic and reason laid out before me, there is no single place in Scripture where he is, Satan is plainly and systematically explained. I wish there were. His presence is simply assumed. His first appearance is infamously in Genesis chapter 3. One early theologian of the church, writing around the end of the 2nd, 3rd century A.D., offered this summary. In regard to the devil and his angels and opposing powers, the ecclesiastical teaching, that means the church teaching, the ecclesiastical teaching maintains that the beings do indeed exist. But what they are or how they exist is not explained with sufficient clarity. The opinion, however, is held by most that the devil was an angel, and having apostatized, he persuaded as many angels as possible to fall away with himself, and these, even to the present time, are called his angels or demons." The biblical record of his work is consistent. He's the root cause behind macro, behind all evil in this world. Having persuaded our first parents to join his rebellion against the Almighty, his existence and human existence are intertwined. And because he opposes God, he opposes those upon whom God's favor rests. That means you and me. As he seeks to thwart God's purposes in this world, he opposes our best interest, which is, come, which is for us to come to a living faith in God through the person of Christ Jesus. As the fruit of the Spirit is meant to be produced and seen in the life of the believer, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
as those are meant to be birthed and produced and increasing in the life of the follower of Christ, so too is the work, the fruit of the adversary, evident. Pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, slander, sloth. The adversary of our soul always works against the purposes of God, always opposes the good news of Jesus Christ. And apart from the awakening grace of God, Paul tells us that he holds an unbelieving world, he has blinded the minds of an unbelieving world to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the very image of God. So our adversary, right, the adversary, seeks to influence men and women in ways that discourage love and repentance and reconciliation and hope and healing. I mentioned a bit ago that the Apostle Paul wrote that our principal struggle is not with each other. You are not my problem. Jackie is not my problem. I might be her problem. <laughs> I, I, I view myself as the grit in her oyster producing a pearl. <laughs> our principal issue is not with each other. And it's important that we remember that. Our principal struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our principle is against the rulers. Our struggle is against the rulers. Against what the New Testament calls the authorities, not the governmental authorities, but the spiritual authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He will say something similar to this in Ephesians 3. In Romans 8, he will again write of these powers of demons, telling us that they seek to persuade us that Christ has abandoned us. And so that in that sense of abandonment, we might despair. Paul writes in Colossians 2, again, of powers and principalities. But in each and every case, we are reminded that Christ has triumphed over them. And we are told again and again not to fear them. We're told that nothing can separate us from the love of or the power of God in Christ Jesus. And that can be so hard for us in a secular, materialistic, 21st century world to get our minds around. For some, it was a stretch to believe in a being called God. When we think of a being called Satan, we think of a cartoon figure right, with horns and a pitchfork ready to gig us. Some of you will know my affection for the Christian apologist C.S. Lewis. Lewis anticipated these problems for modern men and women. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, which is a fascinating and wonderful read, right? in it, Lewis portrays an elder demon named Screwtape writing a series of 31 letters to his nephew, who is a junior demon named Wormwood, who is both ineffective and inexperienced in his tempting. So Screwtape, throughout this book, gives Wormwood detailed advice on the various methods of undermining God's word and of promoting the abandonment of God in whom he calls the patient, the individual that the junior demon is seeking to dissuade from belief in Jesus Christ. And in the book, Lewis writes on this very matter which our reading touches upon today. Lewis wrote that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil's. One is to disbelieve their existence, and the other 
is to believe and to feel an unhealthy interest in them. And then he concludes, they themselves are equally pleased with both errors. And here's, what's, here's what Lewis is getting at. There are some who have become so focused on the demonic, so consumed with spiritual warfare, that they, attempt, they attribute every headache, right, every ill-timed red light, every power outage to the devil. And they seem to forget that we ourselves are responsible for a good many of our own problems. But on the other hand, Lewis would note that there are some, and this will be true probably for many of us, who simply forget the reality of what Scripture teaches on this topic. And so we don't think about an adversary. We don't think about spiritual warfare. We live as though there is no power or influence at work in our lives beyond our own or God's. But Jesus teaches us that in this world, both natural and supernatural forces are at work. And if you are in Christ, you are engaged in a battle. And classically speaking, this battle has, is being fought on three fronts. Our battle with the world and all the things it tells us is important. Our battle with the flesh, our own disordered desires. Our battle with an unseen spiritual adversary, the devil. So what do we do with this? Well, I'm going to suggest we begin by understanding that we have an enemy. And to whatever extent you or I are committed to the cause of Christ, we are on his radar screen. He exerts great power. You may be subject to his attacks. But scripture will also tell you you don't have to be overcome by the enemy because Christ has already overcome him. He's defeated him. Because of his cross and his resurrection, our adversaries ultimate defeat is certain, right? How so? Well, what's the ultimate weapon of our adversary? Death. The fear of death. And death was destroyed on the cross where death itself died. Friends, the Bible says that when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are saved. Those are Paul's words, not mine. When you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are saved. You are, in Pauline language, in Christ. And Christ is in you. The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, right? Do you see what that means? It means that the power that destroyed the work of the devil is now at work in you. And while you may not innately have power to resist and overcome the evil one in whatever way you might be confronted... Jesus does, and he lives in you, and that power is at work in you. Remember that. Rest in that. Let me close with something very personal about this topic. I'm well acquainted with the adversary, well acquainted with his whispering lies, well acquainted with his shaming accusations, I found that he rarely visits me when I feel strong. But he waits for what Scripture calls the opportune time. And so he comes when I'm discouraged, and he discourages me even more. He comes when I'm fearful, and he amplifies my fear. He comes when I'm anxious and deepens that anxiety. He lives in my resentment, 
He lives in my suspicion. He lives in my fears. He lives in my unforgiveness. He lives in my own attempts to justify myself in whatever way I seek to justify myself. And when he comes, he still uses that same old question that tripped up Mama Eve. Did God really say? He seeks to create division and enmity within myself. He seeks to create division and enmity between me and those in my life. He tempts me to make myself look better than I am. He seeks to turn me from obedience to God. He deceives. And that's the heart of his strategy. Lies. Deception. Lies within us. Lies between us. Lies we believe. Lies that we tell to others. You have an adversary. He seeks to separate, to create division within your own mind and your own heart and your own soul. He seeks to separate you from those whom you love. He seeks to separate you from the one who loves you. He seeks your ruin. He seeks your destruction. He seeks your damnation. Martin Luther, in a hymn with which you might be familiar, the prince of darkness, grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Do you know that one little word? Someone whispered it. You can say it. Jesus. One little word. You know, it is never our love for Christ that steadies us. It's his unbroken love for us. We can know this, we can believe this, but we can forget. No matter our weakness, right? No matter our wavering and unsteady or our too easily tempted by the tempter's lying whispers to our hearts, his love is true. His love is relentless. His love is lavish, as the apostle would say. And even when I am faithless, he remains faithful. When my prayers fail, he still intercedes. He has me in his hands. He has you in his hands. The very safest place in the world in which we live. One little word will fell your enemy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word, for disclosing to us truths about the world in which we live, things we may, have, may not have considered, 